that's a bingo. Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Yeah, man. Bingo. How fun. How damn fun indeed. I have quite the story for you guys today. Short story bingo, episode 30. Um, I want to first off say if this is your first time, welcome. If this is your second time, the retention program is working. My name is Nate Chacon III. What I do on this podcast is I read a short story or um, uh, in this case, it's going to be some poems, <laughs> uh, either by myself or with a friend and uh, become a narrator of it. Um, the glorified narrator that you wish was on Audible. Welcome. Um, so last episode, we went over Fred West. It got a lot of tread, uh, certainly mostly because, I, well, I don't know why, but I know that he was a piece, uh, just a real piece of work, this guy, Fred West. So if you have a chance, um, you know, go back to, to that one, uh, episode 29 was just released. He was just a real piece of shit. But uh, yeah, again, um, Episode 30 is in full effect. I got to just get this out about how this one came to be just really quick before I go over uh, the geography hits um, of the world. Um, so last night I was uh, recording, and it's March 29th. It's Thursday morning, so I'm recording this Thursday morning. Normally I record these at, um, at night. It's 6 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, March 29th, which is, and it's being released tomorrow, the 30th. Anyway. So last night I was going to record about, um, and I'm still going to, about the siege of the Alamo, about, you know, about the, how the Alamo went about, so on and so forth. So as I was recording it, because it was pretty late at night, I just found myself not becoming engaged with it. And I really wanted to get this done because we're going out to, um, to Texas and New Mexico this week, this upcoming weekend. So I was like, oh, this will be a good episode to do. I went to sleep, and I was like, I, I was pretty pissed off about it, and um, about not recording it. And so I had a dream. Like I woke up this morning, and I was like, man, I can't get this guy's name out of my head. And I thought it was a joke. I thought uh, because I don't know, I was like I was dreaming about shorts, the short about the podcast about getting it done, and so. Um, the name kept coming up, Billy L. McGonagall. I can't make this up. Billy L. McGonagall kept coming up in my name, in my head. And the title of the story was like Bill uh, of Lading. And that in like logistics, like it tied in with my job because like I, I work for a logistics company and, um, the, you know, the Bill of Lading is like your proof of um, your tracking sheet or whatever. Anyway. Billy L. McGonagall keep coming up. Asked Alexa what Billy L. McGonagall is, and I, I totally expected something stupid to come back. She comes back with saying, William Topaz McGonagall was the worst poet ever. Boom. Just sparked my interest incredibly, and now we're all going to hear about this guy. I, start, I read a little bit about him. He is, he's widely renowned as the worst poet that's like ever been in the English language. So I am like, so happy about this. I've become lightly obsessed with him over the last 30 minutes, so here it is for you guys. Now, the random Twitter follower shout out goes out to my boy uh, Tristan. Uh, you can find him at T underscore Manning four. Uh, he was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, so shout out to you, brother. And the top three countries that have been uh, out or excuse me, listening, shout out to you guys: Sweden, the UK, and the Russian Federation. Sweden comes in real hot on that one. And then in the, for the US, beyond Utah, of course, we have Virginia, Maryland, and California. So thank you guys again. We got to get into the intro music, but we're going to be listening and hearing about William L. McGonagall. But until then, stay fucking sexy, motherfuckers. All right. Short story bingo, episode 30, William L. McGonagall, <laughs> or Topaz. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're sad. Most of the time they're funny because I hate to be sad. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. But don't take my word for it. Spare fingers. Yes.
William Topaz McGonagall, poet and tragedian of Dundee, and this in Scotland, I believe, has been widely hailed as the writer of the worst poetry in the English language. <laughs> Shit. I'm so excited about this. Okay, so I'm get, I got all of this from McGonagall. Again, can't make this up. He has his own, like, it says, the header of this is McGonagall Online. I'm going to post the website, and I'm going to post the four different um, uh, links that I utilize within the website, uh, within, uh, you know, within the description. Also going to post um, a little... Uh, a video on from the Atlantic about his uh, quick biography too. It's like seven minute video, so uh, certainly check that out. I mean, if you're just as intrigued as I am after, especially after hearing all of this. But um, so what? What I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, a bio and then two of his uh, more hailed published works. Um, he he wrote over like 200 poems, but. Uh, the ones that I'm going to read are the famous Tay Whale, which is a little uh, an autobiography, and the Tay Bridge disaster. So the one of the big things that I've just in the past, like I said, I'm, you guys are riding with me on this one. In the past, like 40 minutes, as I've been uh, obsessed with this character, he's just widely renowned as the worst author ever or r- worst poet ever because of his laziness like and we'll go over the summary um of his you know life or whatever but um yeah i i i, I i'm just thoroughly amused with how this went about but anyway a self-educated hand loom weaver of irish descent so i dundee is actually in ireland i guess i don't know we'll see a self-educated handloom weaver. Also, what does that take for you to become a self-educated handloom? Yeah, no, I, I've been watching. I, so I understand how to handloom a little bit. I got to start getting an Irish accent because that's not how he talks at all. A self-educated handloom weaver of Irish descent, he discovered his discordant muse in 1877, and embarked upon a 25-year career as a working poet delighting and appalling audiences across Scotland and beyond his audiences regularly threw rotten fish at him the authorial god damn it I was saying this just now too like who who has their who's holding on to rotten fish is oh Oh, McGonagall's in town. Oh, McGonagall, grab the McGonagall fish right in the back, right next to the, uh, right next to the uh, clothesline pins. Grab the, grab the McGonagall uh, fish. Is that the goddamn McGonagall fish inside the inside the house again? Yes, mother. I just wanted to eat something. You don't eat McGonagall fish. You throw them at me, Lee McGonagall, because he's the worst poet that's ever lived. That's my best Irish accent so far. But seriously, his audience is through rotten fish at him. It's really specific, but... And that's how terrible he was. Also, this guy is amazing. The authorities... Oh, my God. Okay, the authorities banned his performances. You know what? After seeing that... Like, just after he does a, a, a set, he comes off. How was it? How was it? Well, we'll be honest with you. A whole concert hall now smells like bloody... Uh, rotten fish and so we'd like for you never to come back here again because uh, we've never seen that before and uh, we and also your poetry is shitty you 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 might be the worst poet that's ever fucking lived oh my god okay ban his okay so his audiences threw rotten fish at him the authorities banned his performances and he died a pauper uh, and he died a pauper over a century ago and poppers uh ooh, sorry i didn't mean to do that um if you uh excuse me sorry i've got sidetracked if you don't know what uh popper means it's just a very poor person uh, uh p-a-u-p-e-r anyway so he died fucking poor because he wasn't making money over his works which is so crazy posthumously uh you know highly touted as the worst poet ever and so 
now his works get a little bit of pub. It's weird. They only love you. They only love you after somebody kills you. He and he died a and he died a pauper over a century ago, but his books remain in print to this day, and he's remembered and quoted long after more talented contemporaries have been forgotten. Okay, so that's like the brief, brief summary. Kind of gives us an idea of where we're going. So now we're going to just read uh, a summary history of poet McGonagall. Poet McGonagall was born. In the mar in the month of March eighteen twenty five, in the March of month eighteen twenty, <laughs> was born in the month of March eighteen twenty five. His parents were Irish, and his father left Ireland shortly after his marriage and came to Scotland, and got settled down in uh, Ayrshire, in a place called Mabley as a cotton weaver. So his dad was a cotton weaver. All right, so maybe he that's how he all right. And lived there for about 10 years until the cotton weaving began to fail there. How does it just start to fail? And then he we induced to leave it owing to the very small demand. Oh, okay, hold on. Let's do that one. Okay, and got settled down in Ayrshire. This is the dad, right? Okay, his parents were Irish and his father left Ireland shortly after his marriage and came to Scotland. And got settled down in Ayrshire in a place called Mabley as a cotton weaver. And lived there for about ten years until the cotton weaving began to fail there. And then he was uh, induced to leave it owing to the very small demand there was for cotton weaving in that part of Scotland. Then he and his family left Mabley and came to Edinburgh where he got settled down again to work cotton fabrics, which there was a greater demand for. All right, seems fine. Then in Mabley, and by this time, they, the family consisted of two sons and three daughters. William, the poet, was the youngest and was born in Edinburgh. And the rest of the family was born in Mabley and Dundee. His father lived in Edinburgh for more, uh, for more than eight years, until the cotton weaving began to fail yet again. Damn, this guy's like, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to cotton weave, man. I'm just trying to cotton weave. It just seems like they don't have any more jobs for us over here. Get out of here, you cotton weaving mother. <laughs> Get out of here, you cotton weaver. You're making this, you're making the, the, the front smell like rotten fish. You, you, I smell like your son's going to be a bad poet. And little William McGonagall's there like, Roses are red and the street is green. God damn it, William. You're so goddamn stupid. You don't know how to do poems. I'm sorry, Father. I just, I just, I just want, I just want to write. You're getting fish thrown at us and I can't keep cotton weaving. <laughs> Until the, Okay. Okay, his father lived in Edinburgh for more than eight years until the cotton weaving began to fail. Then his father and their family, and his family rather, left Edinburgh and traveled to the Orkney Isles. Feel free to look up all these places or don't, man. And to a house for their family to live in the island of South Ronaldsay. That's a place. That's a place. That's the name of a place. And also, I'm noticing that this is... It sounds like... like it seems like a, a pigeon type of way of English. Like a different dialect. I think this is like in Scottish or Irish or something. Because instead of like... I'm going to... So I'm going to do my best to translate this as I'm reading it. But... All right. So, and travel to the Orkney Isles into a house for their family. It's it's safe. It says they for their family for I'm I'm assuming for the family, but for their family to live in the island of South Ronaldsay. And his father bought the living as a peddler. Okay, he bought the house as a, a poor guy. Okay, and supported the family by selling hardware. Okay, so he's gone. He's moved on from con weaving. Among the peasantry. Uh, okay, in support of the family by selling hardware among the peasantry in the Orkney Isles and returning home every night to his family 
when circumstances would permit him. Mm, what are these circumstances? Char- Charles, the eldest son, was herding cows to a farmer in the island of South Ronaldsay, and his eldest sister, Nancy, was in the service of a farmer in the same locality. And William, the poet, and Thomas, the second eldest brother, uh, was uh, was sent to school to be teached by Mr. James Forbes, the pariah schoolmaster, who was a very strict domini, uh, domini or domini indeed, of which our readers shall hear of as a proof of his strictness. Okay, so kind of give the backstory and what's going on here. So. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, returning home every night to his family when circumstances would permit him. Charles, so this is the oldest, okay, was the eldest son, was herding cows. Uh, his older sister, Nancy, um, was in the service of a farmer in the same locality, in the same neighborhood. Uh, also, service of a farmer, mm, I'll, I'll leave it there. I won't. And William the poet and Thomas, the second eldest brother, they went to school and were teached by this dude named James Forge, who was a pariah fucking schoolmaster. Probably the, like, the. I'm not only am I a teacher, but I'm also the principal, who is a very strict uh, dominee indeed. What is a dominee? I gotta just. I'm really, really excited about this. Um, all right, so Domini, a schoolmaster. Uh, yeah, okay, so this is written in Scottish. So a schoolmaster, a pastor of clergy, or a pastor or clergyman in English, though, or in the U.S. Okay, a schoolmaster. All right. I feel like I want to translate this to, can I translate this to the U.S.? No, nope, we're already in it, so this is what's happening. We're going to learn this together. We're reading Scottish, though. Okay. Who is a very strict uh, dominee, indeed, of which our readers shall hear of as a proof of his strictness, a rather curious incident. William the poet chanced to be one day in his garden behind the school and chanced to espy a live tortoise, a spy, a live tortoise. That the dominie kept in the garden. Okay, so he's just kind of curious little kid. And never having seen such a curious kind of a reptile before. Perfect. His curiosity was therefore excited, no doubt, to see it. And he stooped down and lifted the tortoise with both hands, thereon admiring the very beautiful colors of its shell. When behold, it dunged upon both hands of William the Poet. Which was rather aggravating to William. What does dunged mean? Does that mean lunged? Is it not his fault? Okay. Uh, Drop or spread dung on. He shit on him. Dunged. Dunged. When behold, it dunged uh, upon both hands of William the poem. A poet. He shit on him fucking tortoise which was rather aggravating to William no doubt and he dashed the tortoise on the ground which almost killed it <laughs> you sh- you shit on me tortoise you shit on me I thought we were friends tortoise and the dominee chanced to see him okay so he, then he, the teacher saw him he's like what the fuck and the time and the time through the back window oh and the dominee chanced to see him at the time through the back window of the schoolroom. And he rattled on the window with his cane to William, which startled him. And as soon as William came into the school, he laid hold of him and began and began to beat him unmerciful, unmercifully about the body and face. Jesus. Until his face was blackened in many places. Take it easy, man. With his hard taws and persist. Excuse me, and persisted in it until some of the elder scholars cried out to him to stop. They had to tell this dude, like, hey, man, take it easy. It's all right. It's fucking, he's just messing with the tortoise. Well, also, how old's the tortoise? I mean, maybe it's a kind of like an heirloom situation. I know tortoises, I mean, I've heard of stories of tortoises that have been passed down from generation to generation. So 
Maybe he's super pissed about that. Or he's just a super big dick and doesn't, uh, I don't know. It's a different time, I suppose. But everyone telling him to stop. Like, yo, man, take it fucking easy. And when William went home to dinner and told his kind father, all his kind father, all about it as it had happened, his father flow into a rage and said he would be revenged upon him for beating um, for beating William. Yeah, man. Fuck yeah. Uh, uh, Dad, thanks for coming to have his back. But also, like, that scene of William coming home and just being... That, that, that's sad. That's not... I can't... I don't want to make it... I'm not going to make a joke about that because... But him coming in just, like, all beat up his dad's like, what the hell happened, man? Are you... What happened? Well, you see here, I, I picked up a tortoise. Okay, I said I wasn't going to joke about it, and look what I'm doing. Okay. Um. So he was going to... Re- okay, so... And said he would be revenged upon him for beating William so unmerciful. And accordingly, he went to a magistrate with William and related the case to him as it had happened. And when the, uh, is a magistrate, what is a magistrate? Is that the cops? I'm guessing it's the cops. A civil officer or lay judge. Okay. Should I have just known that? I mean, that might, it seems like that might've been a regular thing. Oh, well, whatever. I looked it up. Now you guys know too. And accordingly, he went to a magistrate with William. So went to the cops. Hey, man, fucking. And related the case to him as it had happened. And when the magistrate examined William's face and seen, it the, uh, seen the marks, the domini, uh, the domini had left thereon. He asked William's, uh, wait, what? The domini had left thereon. He asked William's father if he was willing to put him from ever being a schoolmaster in the parish again. But William's father would not consent to hear of that owing to the kindness he had shown towards his son, Thomas. And he simply asked the magistrate to give him a line to certify to Mr. Forbes so that he could put him from ever being a schoolmaster in in that parish again if he would just say the word. Damn. So he wanted, I mean, he just wanted to get, you know, just wanted to get that dude out of out of commission like yo man you can't just beat fucking kids up like that so William's father went with him to the domini and showed him the line he had got from the magistrate I'm assuming the line means um, like the piece of paperwork but why is the dad administering it why isn't the magistrate coming with him he's like yo this is from the judge man so William's father went with him to the uh, to the uh, domini I gotta fuck I gotta see how that's pronounced because that's killing me and I keep messing it up. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Let's see how this thing is pronounced. Oh, there's not even a... I think it's Domini. Here we go. Domini. Got it. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So William's father went with him to the Domini and showed him the line he had got from the magistrate to certify that he could put him from being a schoolmaster again in the parish if he would say the word. And when the Domini read, he was very much surprised and began to make an apology to William's father for what he had done. Oh, uh, fucking no, man. I'm, I'm, uh, my bad. I promise he would never do that, do the like again. So William and his father were well satisfied for getting such a sweet revenge upon that dominie. And ever after that, William was a great favorite of the dominies and just acted as he as he pleased and was always very unwilling to go to school. (laughs) We showed him, didn't we, little Will? Didn't we, little Will? We showed him, didn't we? We sure did, Paul. We sure did. Oh. My leg still hurts and my face, me face still hurts from all of the hittings that I got from his from his cane. Paul, might I tell you about this tortoise I big picked up? Now go on ahead, Will. Go on ahead. It shit on me. It did. It, it did what? It dunged on me. What? <laughs> and then like to go to the. Uh, just go to the judge be like yo man fucking no it's not going down you just can't beat my son up and the the judge is like okay well take this paper let him know that per the 
per the city, he's done here unless he gives his word about like figuring it out. And uh, yeah, I consider this case closed. Not even like not even a. And then to go to the dude, to the teacher, and principal, and probably owner, and be like, "Yo, man." So the judge says you gotta leave, and he's like, "Oh, well, that's uh, Lil Will. Come here, Lil Will. I'm just. I was just saddened that you had touched my tortoise, and then you fell. He fell upon you. I knew that he had dung done you, so I'm sorry for that. I should have. I should have handled the situation much better. And Lil Will, he's just writing poems in his head. I hate the Domini. It's because he hurt my knee, and if I need some money, then we can all be free." God damn it, Will. Stop making poems. Okay. <laughs> uh, and when the dominie read, he was very much surprised and began to make an apology to William's father for what he had done and promised he would never do that like again. So William and his father were well satisfied for getting such a sweet revenge upon that dominie. And ever after that, William was a great favorite of the dominies and just acted as he pleased and was always very unwilling to go to school. Fuck it, I'm not going. William some days just wake up, just like, ah, I'm not good. What What are they going to do? Nothing, because they beat the shit out of me and I'll take all their jobs. William's father had to... Oh, God, so the dad... Oh, here we go. William's father had to beat him very often before he would go to school. So he never got a gr- very great share of education. What, what, why had to beat him? Like, what did he have to beat him for? William has been like the immortal Shakespeare. He had learned more from nature than ever he'd learned at school. William has been from his boyhood a great admirer of everything that is considered to be beautiful, such as beautiful rivers and mountain scenery and beautiful landscapes and great men such as Shakespeare and great preachers such as the Reverend George uh, Gilfillan. I'm going to say it like that probably. Such as the Reverend George Gilfillan and great poets such as Burns or Tannehill and Campbell and C. But again, I must return to William's father. He stayed... What's a fucking Scottish accent? I must re- I must return. I must return. I must return. Uh, I must return to William's father. He stayed in the island of South Ronaldsay for about three years. And then left it with the family. And came to Dundee. Okay, well, I'm not going to read like that, but I think I might have got it. But again, I must return to William's father. He stayed in the island of South Ronaldsay for about three years and then left it with the family and came to Dundee and settled down in it. And those of the family that were able to work were sent to the mills and some of his sons wrought at the handloom, worked at the handloom in the factory along with himself. That was Thomas and Charles and William worked in the uh, mill for a few years. And then his father took him from the mill and learned him the hand loom himself. Okay, so he taught him. So that he was not self. Or maybe he was self-taught. But also fucking father taught. And he has followed that occupation up to the present. When he can get it to, when he can get it to do. He has always had a great liking for a theatrical representation. And has made several appearances um, upon the stage. In which he probably, I mean, the, the stage that he had fucking rotten fish thrown at him. In the Theatre Royale Dundee, in the character of Macbeth, under the management of Mr. Capel. Okay, so he played character. All right, so he was, he was, a, he loved, he loved theatre. Good for you, sir. In the character of Macbeth, under the management of Mr. Capel. He has also played the characters of Hamlet and Othello, Macbeth, and Richard III, in the music hall, under the management of Forrest Knowles. To delighted and crowded audiences. So this is pre-Ron Fish. And it is only recently ago that he discovered himself to be a poet. The desire for writing poetry came upon him in the month of June 1877. So he was born in 1825. So when he, be, he, was, he was 55, he was like, I'm going to fucking, I'm taking a crack. Well, eight, no, math's wrong. 52. 50, 75. Yeah, 52. I mean, you know, people reinvent themselves pretty late in their lives, I suppose. Yeah, that's fine. 
for writing poetry. Um, I don't know. The desire for writing poetry came upon him in the month of June, 1877, that he could not resist the desire for writing poetry. The first piece he wrote was an address to the Reverend George Gelfillan uh, to the Weekly News, only giving the initials of his name, W. McG, uh, which was received with uh, a clat. Uh, it's all right. We're learning new words together. E C L A T is what it's okay. With a clat, brilliant display or effect. How do you a clat? I think it's a clat. I'm gonna listen. Let's see. A claw. Okay. All right. Some synonyms for it are flamboyance and style. Okay. So the, it, I would say um, well received, which was received with a claw. Then he turned his muse to the Tay Bridge, which we're going to read. We we are going to read, excuse me, and sung it successfully, and was pronounced by the press the poet laureate of the Tay Bridge. And uh, then he unfolded himself, uh, unfolded himself to the public, and honestly gave out to them his own name. Then he wrote an address to Robert Burns, also upon Shakespeare, which he so he was doing biographies. Yeah, I was reading that he like there's an assortment of different. Um, uh, topics that he hit he was as I read at the very beginning he's a tragedian uh, for sure so he like specializes in tragedies but he did a lot of auto bios so doesn't surprise me that he did something about Shakespeare which I'll read um, also upon Shakespeare which he sent printed copies of to her majesty and received her royal patronage for do- so doing I mean the worst poet is getting a lot of fucking uh, clout here a lot of run he has also composed the following effusions the Bonnie Brune haired Lassie O Bonnie Dundee okay it's a really long title maybe we can work on that one and a companion to it oh so there's an addendum uh, little Jimmy we should have just went with like that one first maybe and, and just scratch the other title so also the convicts return home to Scotland. That should be also a really good one. And the Silvery Tay. And a host of others to numer- too numerous to mention, which will be published shortly. Okay. So that's just like a summary, um, brief little history about him. Um, and kind of like give it, give us an idea here. But... I'm going to post on here like where you can find a lot more about it um, about him you know if you're interested as I have been so but yeah so I guess he was just beat up as a kid uh, by his dad didn't really get a good education so that spawned him being a terrible poet so Billy McGonagall alright so we're going to read now uh, two of the poems that I was um that were his um, most published and the first of which is the famous Tay Whale this should be gold twas in the month of December and the year and in the year 1883 that a monster whale came to Dundee resolved for a few days to sport and play and devour the small fishes in the silvery tay. So the monster whale did sport and play among the innocent little fishes in the beautiful tay. Until he was seen by some men one day, and they resolved to catch him without delay. When it came to be known, a whale was seen in the tay. Some men began to talk and say, We must try and catch this monster of a whale. So come on, brave boys, and never say fail. Then the people together in the crowds did run, resolved to capture the whale and to have some fun. So small boats were launched on the silvery tay, while the monster of the deep did sport and play. That's the third fucking time you said that, man. That is the third time you said that. Oh, it was a most fearful and beautiful sight. 
the sea it lashing the water with its tail and its uh, uh, the fuck oh it, oh it, uh, blah, blah, blah. oh it was a most fearful and beautiful sight to see it lashing the water with its tail all its might and making the water ascend like a shower of hail with one lash of its ugly and mighty tail you did tail twice sir then the water did descend on the men in the boats which wet their trousers and also their coats but it only made them the more determined to catch the whale but the whale shook them shook at them his tail this is so lazy and i could but i love it so much then the whale began to puff and to blow while the men in the boats after him did go armed well with harpoons for the fray which they fired at him without dismay oh what was this whale doing and they laughed and grinned just like wild baboons while they fired at him their sharp harpoons <laughs> another one just fucking just, I shoot another harpoon yeah but what uh, but when struck with the harpoons he dived below which filled his pursuers hearts with woe because they guessed they had lost a prize which caused the tears to well up in their eyes and in that their anticipations were only right because he sped on to Stonehaven with all his might and was first seen by the crew of a Gordon a Gordon fishing boat which they thought was a big cobble upturned afloat but when they drew near they saw it was a way so they resolved to tow it ashore without fail so they got this so they got a rope from each boat tied around his tail and landed their burden at Stonehaven without fail and when the people saw it their voices did raise declaring that the brave fishermen deserved great praise and my opinion is that God sent the whale in time of need no matter what other people may think or what is their creed I know fishermen in general are often very poor and God in his goodness sent it dry sent it drive poverty from their door so Mr. John Wood has bought it for 220 oh my god super specific amount so Mr. John Wood has bought it for 226 pound and has brought it to Dundee all safe and all sound which measures 40 feet in length from the snout to the tail so I advise the people far and near to see it without fail come on then hurrah for the mighty monster whale which has got 17 feet 4 inches from tip of to tip of a tail oh the tail's 17 feet and 4 inches which can be seen for a 6 pence or a shilling that is to say if the people are all willing okay yeah alright man well fucking what I mean I can yeah like I said I can immediately see how lazy that is and just like probably reading that at that time being like what man you just rhyme like like showing your kids that like oh yeah here's an like just new poetry and you're just showing your kids and before you read it you're like I'm not showing them this. They're going to get stupider. They're going to become dumb. They're going to get more stupid. Yeah, I said stupider. Uh, So here's some notes from that. In November 1883, a humpback whale swam into the Tay estuary, probably in pursuit of the shoals of herring to be found there. This intelligent and playful beast spent the following weeks in the area, entertaining crowds of onlookers and harming nobody. Apart from nearly overturning a boatload of workers on the New Tate Bridge after an accidental collision. Okay, so, but the whale had made a spectacularly poor choice of playground. Dundee was the country's foremost whaling port, whale oil being used in the processing of jute in the city's mills. And the whole fleet was in harbor for the winter. It didn't take long for the whalers to have a go at the prize that had appeared on their doorstep. Okay, but for weeks, all their attempts to kill the unfortunate beast met with failure. 
a, a succession of local newspaper stories told how the whales seemed to almost taunt his pursuers. And I'm sure, I mean, whales are pretty smart. Whether giving a grin, a grin and sinking below the water on their approach or appearing to salute his friends, the whalers, on Christmas Day. On one occasion, a flotilla of boats was sent upriver when a passing rail passenger reported the whale beached in Invergowrie Bay. When they got there, they discovered that the whale was actually a large black rock, so he didn't, he's fucking smarter than them. Okay, well, so it's about a whale. Yeah, it's about a real whale just kind of hanging out. And uh, they fucking killed it, man. So that's an autobiography about the famous Tay Whale from Billy McGonagall. All right. So the next one is the Tay Bridge Disaster. Beautiful Railway Bridge. Beautiful Railway Bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879 which will be remembered for a very long time. I just start right out. <laughs> You're supposed to rhyme something with taken away after that. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879. <laughs> which will be remembered for a very long time. Okay. "'Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, Oh, and the demon of the air seemed to say, "'I'll blow down the bridge of the Tay.' When the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow, but Bo- uh, Boreas blew a terrible, ter- terrific gale, which made their hearts for to, um, which made their hearts for to quail. And many of the passengers with fear did say, I, well, hold on. See, again, we're, uh, there's different parts of this that you're supposed to. When the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were left with, uh, were light and felt no sorrow. And then you say something that rhymes with sorrow, like, da 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 fucking borrow. Um, when the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow, but Boreas blew a terrific gale, <laughs> which made their hearts for to quail. And many of the passengers with fear did say, I hope God will send us safe across the bridge of Tay. But when the train came near to Warmit Bay, Boreas he did loud and angry bray, and shook the central girders of the bridge of Tay, on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. So the train sped on with all its might, and Bonnie Dundee soon hove in sight, and the passengers' hearts fell light, (laughs) thinking they would enjoy themselves on the new year. What? So the train sped on with all its might, and Bonnie Dundee soon hove in sight, and the passengers' uh, the passengers' hearts felt light, thinking they would enjoy themselves on the new year. <laughs> with their friends at home, they loved most dear, and wished them all a happy new year. I can't make it up. So the train moved slowly along the Bridge of Tay until it was about midway. Then the central girders with a crash gave way, and down went the train and passengers into the Tay. The storm fiend did loudly bray because 90 lives had been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long t- time. Excuse me. As soon as the catastrophe came to be known, the alarm from mouth to mouth was blown, and the cry rang out all over the town, Good heavens, the Tay Bridge is blown down. And a passenger train from Edinburgh, which filled all the people's hearts with sorrow and made them for to turn pale because none of the passenger, because none of the passengers were saved to tell the tale. How did the disaster happen on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time? Okay, well, that's, you know, that's a callback each time. Okay, I'm all right with that. It must have been an awful sight. I immediately go to Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, and the cop gets out and is like, oh, my God. New guy's in the corner puking his guts out. 
It must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonly. Uh, it should have been dusky moonly light. Um, it must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonlight. While the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray along the railway bridge of the silvery Tay. Oh, ill-fated bridge of the silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way. At least many sensible men do say had they been supported on each side with buttresses. <laughs> what is a buttresses? But just the transition, like, it's not even like... There's a, yeah, you're so, you, you guys can hear it. Okay, I'm going to reread that, but i got to look up what buttresses is first. Buttress, Stefan, there we go. Uh, a projecting support of stone or brick built against a wall. Okay, a, a, a support, a brace. All right. Okay, we're going to get down to the part. This is the end of it right here. So, But he's terrible. He's fucking terrible. It must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonlight while the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray along the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Oh, ill-fated bridge of the Silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way. At least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses. At least many sensible men confesses. For the stronger we are, houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. <laughs> Oh my god, that's fucking gold. So the Tay Bridge was actually a thing. I've heard about this before, um, but just to give some notes on it, uh, which again are on this website. Just great job to this website for uh, putting this down. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of it. But yeah, despite well over a century, these are some notes about it, excuse me. Despite well over a century of subsequent train travel, the Tay Bridge disaster remains one of Britain's worst ever railway accidents. A terrific storm, which had spread mayhem and destruction throughout central Scotland, was hailing down the Tay, just as the Edinburgh train was crossing the bridge. Oh, God. As the train reached the high girders at the center of the bridge, they suddenly collapsed, plunging the train and its 75 passengers and crew into the icy waters. There were no survivors, and only 46 bodies were ever recovered. Fucking terrible. The bridge, which had been hailed as an engineering masterpiece on its opening the previous year, was found to have been severely flawed. The official um, the official inquiry uh, discovered that the iron superstructure was of inferior quality and had been badly maintained. What, over a year? I mean, your infrastructure should, yeah, should for sure last at least not just a year. <laughs> Most damning of all, little or no account was made of wind pressure in the design of the bridge. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so what if there's wind that like hits it and like kind of it might like move it back and forth? You're you're silly, man. I, the, have you been around these parts? It's windy right now, man. It's like if I pull up my wind uh, thermometer thing. Um, of this time because it's 18 whatever the fuck um i it's it's windy out here right now we don't need to worry about wind man we just need to worry about just steel and i what also you don't have enough buttresses uh they'll be fine most damning of all little or no account was made of wind pressure in the design of the bridge you're going over a, a body of water you know, wind normally wind travels over water pretty frequently, like often. Um, the inquiry laid the blame at the door of the designer, Sir Thomas Book, uh, Booch, uh, B-O-U-C-H. Uh, Booch vehemently denied the charge, but his career was in ruins. Yeah, man, naturally. He died just 10 months after the fall of a great bridge. Damn, that threw that dude through the mud real quick. Um, I bet that was just depression too. Ten months after, damn man. Though none of the passengers were saved, there was a survivor of a sort, the 
Okay. The engine that had hauled the train to its doom was recovered from the riverbed and put back into service. Sardonically nicknamed, oh, the diver by railway staff. It carried on working for the North uh, British Railway until 1908. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, uh, this happened in 1879. Uh, it was on December 28th. Yeah. That's where it, that's interesting. So the Tabor disaster and uh, the famous Tay Whale by one William McGonagall, William Topaz McGonagall. Short story bingo episode thirty. Thank you guys so much for riding with me on that one. I'm gonna get out on that. Um, super interesting, man. Just to I was gonna read about the siege of the Alamo, which I'm still going to read in the future, um, and then to go to sleep have a, a, a dream about. Uh, a guy that I totally thought was fake. I have so many. I have vivid dreams often. Vivid dreams often. Just sit. I would like to. I should do like a like a little insert on here of what my dream was of the week that like got like stood out to me. I might do. That. I don't know. We'll see. But um, Billy McGonagall. Billy L. McGonagall was the guy in my in my dream. But this is William Topaz McGonagall. So. Bill T. McGonagall. Anyway, episode 30, please send in what you got. If you uh, have a story that you'd like for me to read, shortstorybingo at gmail.com. Again, shout out to the three countries that are killing it right now for us um, and to the three states, Virginia, Maryland, and California. Uh, sorry, the countries um, were Sweden, UK, and Russian Federation. Again, big shout out to my boy Tristan uh, at T underscore Manning four on Twitter. Give him a shout. Um, say what's up. Let him know that uh, we sent you there. Looking on getting some sponsors for the podcast, but we're still getting our footing on things. Um, love y'all, man, and have a happy Easter, happy Podcast Friday. Be safe this weekend if you're traveling. Um, and yeah, I don't know, man. You know what it is. Short Sword Bingo, episode 30. And we're gonna end it like this. Fucking Billy McGonagall and uh, his terrible poetry and my terrible songs. Fucking done. Oh, shit. Oh, there we go. Dun, dun, dun. Spare fingers. Yes.